Okay, um, today's reading is uh, taken from Romans chapter 7, and it's verse 7 through to 25. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin's dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and the righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandments might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand what my, my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find that I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close in hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, wait, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. It's your first time with us or you're, you're visiting. Uh, we are going through this great letter to the Romans and we are right, right in the middle of it now in chapter 7. Uh, and we're going to be thinking about the passage that Kirsty read to us. Uh, around 12 years ago, uh, Joy and I were making preparations to, to move house. Uh, we were doing the packing of boxes. It started maybe a month uh, before, maybe a little bit earlier than that, before we be, we, we prepared to move. Uh, and one of the first things that usually gets packed when we move house is books. Uh, because books are kind of nice to pack. They go neatly in boxes. You know, they fit. I find it quite therapeutic. Uh, but there was a book uh, that didn't get packed when all the other books did get packed. Uh, and that was a book called uh, what to expect when you're expecting. That stayed out of the box because this was a book that Joey was reading often. Uh, we were expecting our first child. Uh, and so she wanted to know what to expect when you're expecting. Uh, and the reason why someone writes a book called What to Expect When You're Expecting, uh, I'm not plugging that book, uh, honestly, uh, uh, but the reason why someone writes a book like that is because expectations are really important. Expectations are really important. 
You see, for Joe, she could have some symptoms and she would turn to the book and know, should I expect this? You know, is it, is it normal to have kind of vague lower abdominal pains during early pregnancy? Oh, get the book out, have a look. Oh, yeah, that's, that's okay. We expect that. Expectations are really important. I wonder if I was to ask you the question this morning, what's your expectation for the Christian life? What expectations do you have uh, for what it means to live as a, a Christian? See, if you have wrong expectations for the Christian life, you, you might uh, hit, hit up against something as you're, you're journeying with Jesus. And you might think, this isn't right. Something's wrong. I didn't expect this. And you might be tempted to throw in the towel or walk away. Expectations are really important. On the flip side, you might uh, have wrong expectations and all sorts of stuff is going on in your life that uh, isn't part of what it means to be a Christian, but you've got those wrong expectations and you think all is well, and so you continue on. We could say we're, we're in this chapter 7, we could say that chapters 5 uh, to 8 of Romans is in some measure there to shape our expectation of what it means to live as a Christian. In chapter 7, we have particularly in focus uh, what should the Christian expect from the law of God? What role should the law of God play in the life of the Christian? See, that's the, the focus of chapter 7 is the law of God. That word law comes up over and over again. And it begins with an objection, the passage that we, we read, verse 7. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. See, as we've gone through these chapters, I hope you've been following along, but we've seen two very different realms. And they've been painted in very stark terms. One has been the realm of Adam, the first man, the one who fell in the garden, the one who, who rebelled. And words that have been used to describe Adam's realms are words like sin, unrighteousness, death. And then on, on the other hand, we've got another realm, the realm that's begun with the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. The realm that if you're a Christian, you, you now belong to. And the words that kind of fit with that realm are grace, righteousness, life. And Paul has already written a bit about the law. And the question that is particularly, or would have been particularly in the mind of his Jewish believers is, so, so which side does the law fall on? Does the law of God belong on, on this side? Or does the law of God belong on, on this side? And it seems from what Paul has written that the law is a, is a bad thing. And he's talked about how the Christian is now free from the law. How the Christian is no longer under the law. He's talked about how the law kind of reveals our sin. It says in chapter 3 that through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's talked about how the law brings condemnation. And so it seems, it would have seemed particularly to Paul's Jewish leaders, that the law belongs on this side with Adam and sin and death and unrighteousness. 
So he's usually say, hold on, Paul, you're not saying the law is bad, are you? And Paul is really quick uh, to say in verse 12, he says, no, the law is holy and righteous and good. And he goes on to unpack, really, the, the role of the law. And so we're going to think about the role of the law under two headings. The first is uh, the law of God and the human race. How the law functions for all people, all men and women, boys and girls. And the second heading, we're going to think about the law of God and the Christian believer. So the law of God and the human race. This is verse 7 to 13. Verses 7 to 13 really show us the law of God in action. And, and there are two things that happen when sinful people like you and me come into contact with the holy law of God. And the first thing that happens is that the law of God exposes our sin. That's what happens. The law of God exposes our sin. Verse 8, yet if, we had not, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law, of se- law had not said, you shall not covet. So coveting, that's wrong desire for things that you don't have, wanting more and more of what you've got enough of already. Coveting is always wrong. When the law of God comes, we, we, we see our sin for, for what it is. The law of God exposes sin. Let me try to illustrate how this works maybe on a, on a human level. Where I, where I work, uh, there's a shared kitchen. And uh, I've been using this shared kitchen for years. Uh, and then one day I walked into the kitchen uh, and there was behind the sink a, a whiteboard. And someone had propped a whiteboard up there and they'd, they'd written some, some words onto the whiteboard. It said, it's not my job to clean up after everyone. <laughs> Please wash your own cups and put them away. What happened when I read those words, stood there making my cup of tea, I suddenly thought of all the times, I'm trying to remember all those times where I'd come in and just put my cup down <laughs> on the sink and just, just left it there. And so suddenly I was, my failure was exposed. That's what the... That's what the Lord does. It exposes our sin. It helps us to see it, see it for what it is. And here's the second thing the law of God does when it comes into contact with sinners like you and me. What happens is our sin tries to e- exploit the law of God. Our sin tries to exploit the law of God. It provokes us to even more Sinfulness, that might sound strange, but that's what Paul teaches us here. Listen, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It's as though the law is like a stick that pokes uh, a terrible monster sin and it stirs to life within us. Those who are parents who have worked with uh, young children know something of this dynamic. <laughs> if you want a child to do something, the sure way to get them to do it is to tell them not, not to do it. 
suddenly they find within themselves the desire to do it, the curiosity is born. Why shouldn't I do that thing? It's not just children, is it? It's adults as well. During the lockdown in 2020, I uh, turned on the news and saw that I was only allowed to exercise for one hour a day. One hour a day. Before that, you know, one hour a week would have been good. <laughs> but after I saw that news, suddenly within me, I want to exercise more than one hour a day. <laughs> suddenly a new motivation. You know, that's the, the law. Ex, the sin exploits the law. And it's the same with the law of God. The law of God provokes sinful rebels to more rebellion. These verses, verses 7 to 13, they, they really describe the, the story of humanity. There are echoes in verses 7 to 13 of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, alive apart from the law, when the law came and they died. There are echoes of the story of Israel as well. The law that promised to bring life. That's how the law worked for, for the people of Israel. Do me and you will live. You will enjoy blessing. Disobey me, said the law, and you will be cursed and die. It brought the promise of life. The law couldn't bring life. It only brought, brought death. This is also the story of Paul himself. That's why it tells us in the first person. And as he tells it, it's really the story of every man, every man, every woman, every child. The law of God exposing our sin, showing us who we are. And then our sin seeking to exploit the law and rising up in rebellion. With that purpose of the law clearly in mind, we're going to move on to the, the next part, the last half of chapter 7. And we're going to see the law of God and the Christian believer. If you know anything about these verses, verses 14 to 25, you'll know that throughout the history of the Christian church, there's been much debate about these verses. What do they, what do they mean? Who is Paul writing about in these, these verses? Lots of pages in the commentaries, lots of ink has been spilt. These verses clearly describe someone who's engaged in an, in an obvious struggle person who tries to understand the struggle they're in and as they do that they recognize that they're kind of a bundle of contradictions just just listen to it. I'll, I'll read it again for I do not understand my own actions for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate now if I do what I do not want I agree with the Lord that it's good so now it's no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that's in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. It's a painful read, isn't it? I just want to point two things out, really, about that that are worth noting. I think they're very important points. The first, it's all very personal. See all the eyes and the minds. It's a very personal experience. And the second thing to point out is that it's all written in the present. This is a, a present experience. And I think those two points shouldn't be disregarded lightly. As I said, there's been lots of discussion about these uh, verses 
over the course of history. Uh, and most of the discussion around, has been around the question of who, who is he? Is this Paul writing about his, his own experience? Is he kind of pretending to be someone else? Putting himself in someone else's shoes? And the answer to that question is really important because the answer to that question as to who we think is speaking here determines how we apply this passage. Some people find it very hard to, to believe that this could possibly be the mature apostle Paul writing about his own experience. He says some pretty strong things about himself. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin, he says in verse 14. Sold under sin. This is Paul who just a chapter before has been declaring we're free from sin. We're no longer slaves from sin. No longer slaves to sin. In verse 18 he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. This is Paul who's been glorying in the gospel and the, the precious jewels precious riches of the gospel message that come to him in Christ. And so people say, this can't be Paul, the mature Christian. This must be Paul talking about that experience before he became a Christian. You know, maybe he was on the journey to becoming a Christian and realizing, you know, he didn't have the power to live as a Christian. But then, begs the question, doesn't it? Paul also says in verse 21, he says, in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. Do you know any, any non-Christians, any people who don't belong to Jesus who speak like that? <laughs> in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. And so some people put these two things together and they say, oh, okay, maybe this is Paul he is a Christian, uh, but something's missing. Maybe he needs a, a second experience to really kind of gain the victory and, and get a, a higher life. Maybe he, he, he's not really kind of grasped God's grace. He needs to experience more of the Spirit's power. Maybe it's this kind of in-between stage that Paul's stuck in. It's the, those kind of people would say, oh, we need to get out of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. When we get into chapter 8, we'll see the big theme of chapter 8 is the work of the Spirit in the life of God's children. Others say, no, 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 this is the Apostle Paul, the mature Apostle Paul. He's describing his present experience. And if you know nothing of this struggle, then you're not a mature Christian believer. What do we do when there's all these kind of <laughs> different ideas? I find great help uh, from Sinclair Ferguson this week as I studied. I often find Sinclair Ferguson helpful. And he said, uh, maybe the most important question when we come to this passage is not who is speaking. Maybe there's a different question that we, we should be asking. Maybe we need to step back a bit. The emphasis, as I said at the start of chapter 7, is the law of God. And the focus of chapter 7 is particularly the function of the law of God. And Paul is writing to Christians. 
And he's particularly interested in the function of the law of God in the life of the Christian believer. So maybe the important question when we come to chapter 7 is, is what is that function? What is the purpose? What purpose does God have for his law in the life of his children? When we ask that question, I think we begin to see some parallels between Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 6, and Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 6, can you remember what we, we covered? We looked at how the, the Christian's relationship with sin is changed. They've been rescued from the power of sin. Sin is no longer our master, thank God. We no longer have to serve sin. We are rescued from the power of sin. But every Christian knows they continue to battle with the presence of sin in their own life. We're rescued from sin's power, but it is still present in our lives. And so Paul was teaching us that we we ought not to present ourselves as servants, as slaves of sin, but we should present ourselves to the risen Jesus day after day. And there's a similar parallel as we come to chapter 7 and the law. At the start of chapter 7, he says how we are free from the law. We're no longer under the law. But the law of God is still very much present. We have God's law. We open our Bibles. We we read about it. And as we do that, God's law continues its uncomfortable work in the life of the believer, exposing our sin, aggravating what Paul calls our sinful flesh. I think this work of the law is, is all the more uncomfortable for the Christian. Because for the, law, for the Christian, the law of God isn't just something external. It's been internalized. That's why Paul says he delights in the law of God, in his inner being. But the struggle is all the greater. So as Christians, you and I say with Paul, we, we delight in the law. We see the goodness of it. We long to follow. We, we, we want to obey from the heart because we're new creatures. And yet even as we say this, we recognize the contradictions within, don't we? Sometimes I'm just a confusion to myself. See, as a Christian, these two things are true of you and me. The first is this, sin still dwells in me. Sin still dwells in me. That'll be the, the reality until the day I die and I enjoy the glories of a resurrection body. That day is certain, but it's not yet here. And so sin will continue to rear its ugly head. Every time I, I look into the, into the law of God, I will see something of my sin. It will be painful at times. Sometimes that cry will come from the heart like it does at the end of the chapter, oh, wretched man that I am. But there is a greater truth about you and I if we're Christians. Yes, sin dwells in us. But the Lord of glory also dwells in us. And that's the deeper truth. That's why as Paul writes this, you get a sense he, he distances himself from his sin. 
He says things like, it's no longer I who, who do, but sin that dwells in me. He recognized the deepest truth about himself. Isn't his sinful flesh that will one day be separated from him fully and finally? But it's the life of Christ within him. Sin dwells in me. The Lord of glory dwells in me. And that means my life in this world has become a battleground, a war. This is how Paul summarizes it, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm convinced that Paul is describing here the experience of the ordinary Christian believer. But I want us to be clear that this isn't all that there is to the experience of the ordinary Christian believer. This is part of it, but it's certainly not all of it. It wasn't as though the Apostle Paul just traveled around the ancient world crying out, a wretched man that I am. He did write of himself that he was the chief of sinners. There's, there's more to the Christian experience than this. As Christians, we, we've seen, haven't we, in Romans, we experience great joy in the present. We rejoice as the hope of glory. That day when we'll be glorified as we see Jesus face to face. In the present, we enjoy real and lasting peace with God now and forever. We stand in his grace. So again, to chapter 8, we're going to read that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We have complete security. As we depend on the Spirit, we do begin to grow in godliness. Chapter 7 isn't the complete experience of the Christian, but it is part of it. This is what the law of God will do in us. We will feel our falling short. Let's uh, move to some applications. How should we apply the truth of this passage to our own lives today? Come up on the screen, there's just three of them. The first is this. Don't don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. Don't don't despair. The experience that Paul describes in chapter seven can be discouraging. I think particularly uh, in those early years of life as a Christian. Tremendously discouraging. It seems like the more you try to follow Jesus, the more you realize you're falling short. It feels like you, the more you understand something of God's holiness and glory, the dirtier you feel. Someone's used the illustration of a man who's walking a field at night, he falls and gets all muddy. It's dark, he can't see continues to walk and as he approaches the road he begins to get in distance of the, the street lights 
slowly as he approaches the streetlights, he begins to realize how dirty he is. And as he gets closer to the road, the dirtier he realizes he is as the light shines on him. I think there's an analogy there for the, the Christian as they grow to know the holy God who is only light. I just want to say don't be discouraged. This is part of the experience of the ordinary Christian. If you expect to live as a Christian without a deep knowledge of your own sinfulness, you'll be disappointed. So that's the first thing, don't be discouraged. The second thing is rely on Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Did you spot where all Paul's struggle leads him to? He cries out, oh wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Allow the work of the law of God in your life to drive you to Jesus. Let it cause you to live in daily dependence upon him. So you mustn't look to the law to change us. The law has no power to change you. It's not why God gave the law. God didn't give the law to make bad people good. The law cannot change you. We saw earlier in the book of Romans, didn't we, that the law cannot make you right with God. The law cannot justify the sinner. And also the law cannot sanctify the saint. Only Jesus can by his spirit. So humbly come to him. I was chatting with a friend uh, a couple of weeks ago and he just shared with me half of a verse from the book of James. He just said, but he gives more grace. <laughs> That's our God. He gives more grace. Don't rely on the law. Rely on the grace of God at work in your life. And as you rely on Jesus, look to the resurrection. That's where, where Paul looks as he talks about being free from this body of death. He's, he's awaiting a resurrection day. A day when even his very body will be redeemed. As you rely on Jesus, look to the day of the resurrection. When you look at Jesus and you will be like him. We sang about that day last week in one of our songs. A day when the very presence of sin will be banished from our lives. A day I'm sure every Christian longs for. On that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Clothed, in blood, clothed then in blood washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Just rely on Jesus in all of the struggle. And then uh, finally, uh, Honesty, honest humility. So at the start, these verses are really personal, aren't they? And they're also really honest. <laughs> this is the Apostle Paul, and see how honestly he writes. It's hugely honest, isn't it? This is him describing himself in the, in the present tense. When he writes to Timothy, again, he describes himself in the present tense and says, I am the chief of sinners. We need, I think, I know, <laughs> I need to have this same kind of honesty. In the church, we need to have this 
same kind of honest humility. It's a battle. It's a struggle. Sin dwells in us. The Lord of glory dwells in us. It's always going to be a battle. And so we need this honest humility. I think there's a, a danger that as the years of our discipleship pass, we do begin to lack this honesty, both with ourselves and with, with others. And what happens over time is we begin to give off the impression that we've, we've got it all together. We've got it all sorted. And we don't. Paul writes to this first century church in Rome. And he lets them know he hasn't got it all together. I think he's, he writes like this to stimulate the same kind of honesty. The honest humility in that church too. Because when there's this honest humility that leads us to rely on God's grace, doesn't it? And when we do that, unity and harmony will flourish in our church. But without this honest humility, the church will become stiff and starchy and self-righteous. My prayer for myself and for us as a church is, oh God, give us this honest humility. Should we pray together uh, and then we'll sing. Let's ask God uh, that he would do that in us. Dear Father God, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you that your word is truth and we can depend upon it. Thank you that you speak to us to help us to live well as your children. Father, we pray that you continue to take your word and speak to us in the days and weeks ahead. We pray that as we come back to this passage in home group and think through more of these applications, that you would work in our hearts. We pray that in your grace you would grant to us more of this honest humility. We look to you in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.